Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, y'all. K-I-R-P When you're looking for real truth, real talk radio, make sure you log on to KIRPRadioshow.com. Sunday nights live, 8 p.m. with your host. Rocco P. Yes, it is the last Sunday night of the month. And Pudgy Miller lets me host this show. Thank you, Pudgy. Tonight, I'm going to be discussing the downing of that Russian jet in Syria. Really, came down in Syria, though Turkey had said violated Turkey's airspace. There's so much involved in this story. There's so much involved with what's going on 
with ISIS in Iraq and especially Syria. Uh, initially, I was thinking about talking about the refugee crisis, and this is all obviously tied together, but I'm going to focus on that downing of that Russian jet because the implications of that as the U.S. goes forward, really, uh, because this thing called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, we'll talk a little bit about NATO uh, down the road in the program. But what had happened? What's uh, what were uh, what were the bare facts? What happened? What were we told? What were, what were we not told? On Tuesday, this past Tuesday, November 24th, a Russian jet, specifically an Su-24 attack aircraft, was shot down by Turkey. Turkey had said uh, had gone to great lengths to say the Russian jet had violated their airspace. Russia had said that's not the case. And I'll I'll read a quote in a moment by Vladimir Putin himself, the president of Russia. Okay, so there's two conflicting stories. What what is what is my perspective of what happened? In all probability the Russian jet did not violate Turkish Turkish airspace. I don't believe that happened in all probability. But let's say it did. Let's say the Russian jet did violate Turkey's airspace. What would be involved in that, right? Think about what is being presented to the world, not just the U.S. Uh, public, but to the world about what's going on now in Syria. Okay, in Syria, there is a civil war. Okay, ISIS is really beyond the terrorist force. It's uh, it's a non-state uh, actor. It's really acting as an army, literally. Okay, and we could talk about. Yeah, how ISIS has gotten all their military equipment, uh, how ISIS has been funded. We'll talk a little bit about that with the, as far as the oil money. But the basics of the conflict is that you have this, you have this rogue, so-called rogue army of ISIS, Islamic states of uh, Iraq and Syria. People will say ISIL or Islamic State, and they're clearly trying to depose the president of Syria. Uh, President uh, Assad. The U.S. has taken a position that Assad has to go with really no explanation. And that's the first thing I'll get to in a moment as far as the humanitarian angle. The U.S. has tried to claim that for humanitarian reasons, President Bashar uh, al-Assad of Syria has to go. At the same time, at the same time, the U.S. has said, that they're opposed to ISIS. Now, think about that. If the U.S. has two objectives as far as Syria is concerned. One is that they believe Assad should go, and the other is to get rid of ISIS. You'd have to say, okay, what, what, is, the, what is the larger objective if there's two? They certainly haven't treated them uh, with the same level of importance. In other words, the U.S. has not made a serious effort to uh, to remove ISIS from the area. I think that's obvious. I don't think anyone at this point could debate that. Uh, if, if, in fact, the U.S. had made a serious effort to attack ISIS in, uh, in Iraq, and especially in Syria, there would be no need for Russia to have entered the theater. In other words, Russia entered the conflict militarily because of you know, the devastation 
that ISIS had caused to Syria. Again, once I do have to stress, we're not talking about you know just a bunch of guys you know just somehow got got a few machine guns and mounted this force. Now we're talking about a highly organized military effort. Literally, we're talking about an army, and that that again opens up the questions as far as how did ISIS get the money? How did they get the logistics? How did they get the military equipment? How did they get the training? To do this, because to fight an actual war in Syria, and and make no mistake about it, I mean this is this is a civil war uh, involving Syria. Uh, in order to do that, people, nations, uh, <laughs> there's there's act there's uh, there's people involved that are actively helping ISIS, training them, funding them. Uh, so, but think about it. if if let's say. The, the Russian the Russian jet did for 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 you know just to present the argument if the Russian jet did violate Turkish airspace why would Turk why would Turkey shoot it down if and this is the big if if in fact Turkey as a NATO member as a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization okay the United States has said they're opposed to ISIS if that occurred when you know full well that Russia is there to fight ISIS. Why would you even why would it even be an issue? See this is this is why the narrative the narrative is really falling apart that the US has that the US again says Assad has to go based upon this uh this idea of humanitarian reason. Okay. So the US claims they don't like uh, the way Assad has treated his people. So the U.S. says, "All right, they have. There's a moral reason that Assad should step down." Okay, you know, for in, you just you throw the Constitution out the door at this point. Yes, this is a sovereign nation. The U.S. has no legal right to intervene. Boom, then it would be over. But people, you know, President Obama is an oathbreaker. He doesn't respect his oath of office. The vast majority of people in the U.S. Senate don't respect their oath of office. The vast majority of people in the U.S. House of Representatives don't respect their oath of office. So we have these illegal wars that have gone on and on and on since the end of World War II. The last time war was legally declared, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, was against Romania as part of World War II. And of course, there were other nations involved, but that was the last legal war. Every war since then has been illegal. And the precedent was started after World War II. The U.S. got involved in a war in Korea based upon a United Nations mandate. That was an extremely dangerous precedent that the U.S. still falls to, to today. We're also going to talk about that later. So we have this Russian jet that goes down over Syria, even though Turkey said it violated their airspace. So if you did want to believe Turkey's version, of it, if you wanted to believe, believe their story, then you say, okay, it came, went down to Syria, but it was shot down when it was, uh, when it was over uh, Turkish airspace. The Washington Post ran a piece on uh, on the same day, November twenty fourth, and you see, you you see, the the terrible time they're having trying to convince the readers about what happened when they're trying to interpret this event. I'll, I'll read it. This is a quote from the Washington Post piece on on November twenty fourth. Quote: The downing, meaning the downing of the Russian jet. The downing brings renewed attention to a scenario feared for months 
by the Pentagon and its partners, a potential conflict arising from overlapping air missions over Syria, with Russia backing the government of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and a U.S.-led coalition conducting airstrikes against the Islamic State. So they're, they're saying they use this phrase, overlapping missions. Okay. Uh, so what is really, why is there a conflict that the missions were overlapping? The reality is the missions should be the same. It goes back to where I said before. The U.S. claims, and I think now the world the world knows most people objectively know uh, it's just not true. The U.S. claims that they want to eliminate ISIS. And they don't. They don't. They want to topple Assad. And that's created the whole false narrative. You know, John McCain, who's been lying since, you know, the inset, you know before he became a U.S. senator, <laughs> uh, John McCain, who's made his career uh, being a liar, has talked about the Free Syrian Army. And they created this this illusion, uh, complete fabrication, that there's these moderate uh, moderate Syrian opposition to President Assad. And again, that begs the question that why does Assad have to go? And even if he was a horrific leader, and that remains to be seen in my opinion, okay, you, you look at the state of Syria, okay, very similar to Iraq before the U.S. invasion, very similar. You have a secular... Muslim state. In other words, you don't have a religious state. It's not like the alleged ally of the United States, Saudi Arabia, who regularly beheads people. Okay, the Sharia law isn't in place in Syria. Just like occurred in Iraq, you had a secular Muslim state where you had you had a fairly high degree of freedom of of, of religion. They respect religious minorities. Christians were protected in Iraq. Christians are protected in Syria. Yet the U.S. maintains Assad has to go. And and that's what this really comes down to. There aren't overlapping missions. Okay. Because when the Washington Post says Russia backing the government of, of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the U.S.-led coalition conducting airstrikes against the Islamic State, well, surprise, surprise, uh, who is opposing Assad. ISIS. ISIS is opposing Assad. So <laughs> if the mission if the missions were real, in other words, if the United States was seriously committed to, to getting rid of ISIS and they're obviously not, then there's there's no conflict. There's no conflict whatsoever. But the US isn't and now people are seeing that you know this is this is a complete fabrication. It's total it's total fiction what the US public has been told about this. Once again, to make it very simple, the U.S. says they're opposing ISIS. ISIS wants to topple Assad. The U.S. says Assad has to go. What is the U.S. Real, is, what is the real object of the United States militarily? It's to topple Assad. Okay. And what, what's the pattern been we take the so-called humanitarian angle? Okay. Once again, I want to stress there's no, absolutely no constitutional authority for the U.S. military to be involved in this conflict. Game over. There's none. Period. There's none. If the U.S. wanted to follow the Constitution in this, you could use Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, and you could do that by issuing a letter of marquee reprisal. At this point, though, let, let, I mean, let's face it, Russia has determined, has demonstrated that they're determined to significantly fight ISIS. So why would the U.S., if, if the goal really is to get rid of ISIS, you, you, no, the U.S. doesn't really have to be involved. 
uh, non-military. They could give some logistical support to Russia. Uh, they could you know, help Russia in those ways without being involved. But uh, you know, Russia's demonstrated they're willing to do the airstrikes that the U.S. has said they want to do, but never really did. Okay. And when I make a statement like that, when I said, you know, U.S., Russia's made airstrikes, the U.S. has said that, you know, they want to do. Okay, here's here's a gem. Here's a gem. Here's, here's this came out after, Ru- it was, this actually came out well before the Russian jet was downed. But then uh, it was it was brought to my attention yet again after Russian jet was shot down by Turkey. Okay, even the National Review admits this. I'll quote a piece. From from a National Review this week, after 15 months of airstrikes against ISIS, America finally managed to bomb 116 trucks that smuggle, I like the word smuggle, oil out of ISIS territory, generating some $1.2 million in clandestine cash daily. Okay. That one point, that, and that figure there, that $1.2 million, what they say in clandestine cash, I don't think it's that clandestine. Uh, <laughs> this is, We're talking about $40 million a month or $500 million a year. And guess what? This oil that ISIS is getting from Iraq, where where they okay they can't they can't sell it in Iraq. It goes goes on trucks. Okay, it's a highly organized operation. Like I said before, with ISIS, okay, this is highly organized operation. Gets on trucks, and where does it go to before they sell it? It goes to Turkey, and then they sell it to other places. So. When you look at what's what's going on now, the U.S. is losing control of the narrative because people are realizing this story had broke again. It had it had been out there, but it got more excuse, excuse me, got more attention after the Russian jet was downed. That begs the question: Why was the U.S. for 15 months when they knew exactly what was going on? ISIS is being funded not exclusively, but to a large degree. Through oil, they're, they're, they're stealing through Iraq. So if this whole idea, if this airstrike wasn't just a, you know, a complete and preposterous and colossal lie, the U.S. could have easily bombed those trucks in Iraq. At any time, they know where they're going. They, think about the, the sophistication of satellite images, you know, of photos. They, they, know exactly, they knew exactly what was going on. Okay. Now, to quote the National Review again, that sum buys plenty of knives for beheadings, Kalashnikovs for mass shootings and plastic for suicide vest. France now leads the war on terror in the wake of ISIS on November 13th massacre in Paris. Obama must have reckoned that with France bombing from in front, you might as well bomb from behind. Okay, so it takes the U.S. 15 months to stop this, and they really didn't. That they got involved. Uh, it took Russia. I didn't pull up the stat, the statistic, the numbers right in front of me, but Russia devastated. Uh, I don't know how many of those tankers uh, and the other trucks within a week, I don't know, 100 sorties. So the U.S. is losing the narrative here. They're they're losing not just the story, they're losing losing the way people interpret this because people are seeing it's, it's illogical. It's not that Obama's weak. Obama has no problem killing people. Okay, let's face that. He expanded the illegal drone strikes against, and most of those kill innocent civilians. So Obama has no problem. The Obama administration has no problem killing people. It's you can make a real good argument that they enjoy killing innocent civilians. So there's no problem. There's no there's no objection to Obama using military power. The the the, the real truth in this is that the U.S. is not and has not been committed 
to attacking ISIS. And I would suggest, okay, that's to a large degree, that ISIS is the creation of Western intelligence. Okay, that, that's, that's a bigger point. I'm not going to go there right now. That's a real simple explanation for why the U.S. is not dealing with ISIS. Now, I want to, I want to get back to this humanitarian angle here. The humanitarian angle. The humanitarian angle. Okay. So, even uh, some U.S. politicians have questioned openly why Assad has to go. And as I've already said now, numerous times, there's no base in the there's no base in the Constitution to to just oppose a leader because the U.S. says they don't like him or he's treating their people wrong. And when you use this humanitarian argument, again, the legal argument, if you follow the Constitution, it's not there. When you look at the, when you look at the humanitarian argument, it completely explodes. It's it's another colossal, horrific lie. In in Iraq, after the U.S. invaded, about 25% of the Iraqi population became refugees. We don't know how many civilians were killed after the invasion because the U.S., Military, I think it's an embarrassment. They don't like to keep, they don't record those numbers. So in spite of all the money that's at the disposal of the U.S. military, uh, they really don't like to count civilian casualties. And I think we know why they do not like to count civilian casualties, because that would be a terrible embarrassment to them. So we have, uh, we have all that, uh, we have that going on. We had that going on in Iraq, all right? In Libya, very similar situation. You had Muammar Gaddafi. Okay, Gaddafi had done things. You know, had been volunteerism years, years past. But then, the U.S. decided, apart from any congressional declaration of war again, and even apart from a token congressional resolution or a token funding of that, uh, President Obama sends a letter to uh, then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid saying, "I just want to let you know I'm bombing Libya." Okay, what's happened since that? The U.S. again tried to use the humanitarian argument to say uh, Muammar Gaddafi has to go. The U.S. goes in, bombs Libya, helps helps these radical jihadis gain power, and now life in Libya. You know, you could say that regime is maybe not a thousand times worse, maybe a hundred times worse than wherever Gaddafi was, and then the people suffer again. So you look at what's happened in Iraq, and one estimate, a British polling organization uh, at one point in the Iraq war took took some numbers, and they estimated, okay, how many Iraqi civilians have died? And then the low number they came up with was 600,000. That was a low number. Okay. So when you look in, when you look in terms of, of, again, there's no constitutional basis for these wars. Then you look at the humanitarian angle. It's uh, it's an illusion. I mean, that's a nice word to say. It's, it's a colossal lie. It's a colossal lie. The vast majority of Iraqis, uh, a, yeah, many vast majority wanted Saddam to go, but the vast majority had no desire for the U.S. to be there. In the U.S., I mean, the infrastructure was devastated in Iraq. Life has never been the same. Uh, another way to look at this, again, is in terms of liberties. As I said before, Iraq was a secular Muslim state. There was respect for religious minorities, including Christians. After the U.S. invaded, that all went away, and the U.S. helped transform Iraq into an Islamic Republic. Okay. So when you hear some of this stuff, you might say, well, that makes no sense. Well, it does if you understand the goal is to destabilize the Middle East. It's not to build it up. 
to the humanitarian argument, I think uh, I first when I first heard this, I, I really even I I couldn't believe it, and that was that under sanctions before the Iraq War, okay, uh, I'm saying even the first one after Iraq invaded Kuwait, before the first Iraq War, there were sanctions against Iraq. They occurred under President Bill Clinton, and those sanctions resulted in the deaths of 1.5 million Iraqi civilians. So when you try and use the so-called moral high ground or say you know the US the US has this uh the US has this moral authority or obligation to be involved uh, <laughs> it it makes absolutely makes absolutely no sense as far as what has occurred Real gon' recognize, real gon' recognize, real gon' recognize, real, real. Pony gon' recognize, still, still recognize, will. Like we always do with this time, I go for mine, I get to shine. Now throw your hands up in the sky. Sundays with Rocco P. Talking about this uh, humanitarian reason, the humanitarian explanation for the U.S. to be involved in these foreign wars. Historically, sanctions have been considered an act of war. Okay? During, again, as I mentioned, during the Clinton administration, 1.5 million Iraqis, including that include 500,000 children, died due to hunger because of sanctions the U.S. put in. So when you understand this, you start to realize, apart from having no basis in the highest law of land the Constitution, there is no moral basis for these policies. There's none whatsoever. There's none whatsoever. I'm going to play a clip from Madeleine Albright when she was on 60 Minutes, and that question was asked about, you know, about the policy. We have heard for half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, well, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Okay, that was from 1996. That was from 1996 when Madeleine Albright was on 60 Minutes. Now, uh, New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson was on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman back in 2005, and Amy Goodman also raised that issue. We are joined right now uh, in the Capitol building where we're broadcasting from uh, 
by New, the Mexico, New Mexico governor, Bill Richardson. Um, he is a seven-term Congress member, served in the House of Representatives for seven terms. He was the Energy Secretary under Bill Clinton, as well as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, now Governor of New Mexico. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you, Amy. It's great to have you with us. But many say that although President Bush led this invasion, that President Clinton laid the groundwork with the sanctions and with the previous bombing of Iraq. You were President Clinton's U.S. Right. Ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, the sanctions were the correct policy. Right. Uh, the sanctions, for example, the sanctions led to the deaths of more than a half a million children, not to mention well, one million Iraqis. I stand behind the sanctions. Uh, I believe that uh, there were, they successfully contained Saddam Hussein. I believe that uh, the sanctions were an instrument of our policy. To ask a question that was asked of uh, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Madeleine Albright, do you think the price was worth it? 500,000 children dead. Well, I believe our policy was correct, yes. So, there you have it. Uh, then, uh, you had someone who worked for the Clinton administration, uh, Bill Richardson, former governor of New Mexico, at the time of the interview in 2005, confirms what Madeleine Albright said, the policy was worth it. It was worth it due to these policy objectives, whatever it was, to kill 1.5 million Iraqis, including 500,000 children. So, again, when, when people, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, and if you listen to me, you know, I mean, I'm quoting these guys, but I'm not just going after not just going after the Democrats. This is this is far bigger than Obama because obviously the Republicans control Congress and they can stop it and they don't want to. When when people regardless of their background tried to say try to say that well there's what the US has done in the Middle East, it's moral. Or if they say this this has helped the people, uh they're wrong. I mean they're 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 just they're just terribly Terribly, terribly misinformed, and of course the people in Washington know they're liars. But uh, you know, the people we're talking to, we're rubbing shoulders with. By and large, they don't. They're believing the sound bites. They're believing what they get in yeah you know, five, ten minutes uh, that they hear on CNN or Fox News or elsewhere. That's what they believe. Going to come up to a break now. We're going to talk more about this bigger issue as far as the policy in the U.S. Uh, U.S. U.S. policy in the Middle East and. Uh, why we're seeing what's going on. How many more innocent people? How many more? How many more? What has been the number one cause of unnatural death in history? Democide, or death by government, has killed 290 million people on record. Look it up. Go look it up. In the 20th century, government murdered four times as many people as were killed in all the international and domestic wars combined. USSR. 61,911,000 people killed. Hitler's Germany, nearly 21 million people killed. Japan's imperialism, nearly 6 million people killed. Western colonization killed over 50 million people. Pol Pot's Cambodia, funded by the U.S. government, 2 million people killed. China's Communist Party, as many as 76 million people killed between 1949 and 1987. And the list goes on 
and on. Demand to know why the Department of Homeland Security bought more than 1.6 billion hollow point bullets. How many more people does government have to kill? Enough. Enough. Demand an end to citizen disarmament. As an American. As an American citizen. As a patriot. For your children. Enough of the people laying down and letting government kill them in mass after disarming them as they've done throughout history over and over again. Now is the time. It's time. It's time to realize that when the government takes your guns, people die. It's time to realize the biggest threat to you and your family is government. It's time to recognize government is the greatest killer of all time. Demand they show you the word hunting in the Second Amendment. Demand our politicians uphold the Constitution and Bill of Rights as they swore to when they took office. It's time for our leaders to read the Constitution. It's time for our leaders to obey the Constitution. The Constitution. The Constitution. Because a well-regulated militia with 10-round magazines wouldn't last very long. So now you know the most dangerous thing to you and your family in the world is government. Because mass murderers agree, gun control works. You're listening to the KRP radio show. Last one is with Rocco P. I'm talking about U.S policy in the Middle East in light of the downing of this Russian jet by Turkey. I read a piece uh, by Pepe Escobar. Pepe Escobar is an independent journalist. He's from Brazil. He used to work for, uh, I think, the Asian Times. He does some work for RT, so he's not just owned by the Russians hardly. He is independent, but he does some work for RT. But he pointed out, he gave me some information that was not reported uh, widely at all in in uh, the U.S. media, and that's that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin had a press conference with the President, President Hollande of France after this occurred, and this is what this is what uh, Putin said. And again, there was numerous statements that you know, Turkey could prove that this Russian jet violated their airspace. This is what Putin himself said: "Quote: We told our U.S. partners in, in advance where." when, at what altitudes our pilots were going to operate. This, the U.S.-led coalition, which includes Turkey, was aware of the time and place where our planes would operate. And this is exactly where and when we were attacked. Why did we share this information with the Americans? Either they don't control their allies, or they just pass this information left and right without realizing what the consequences of such actions might be. We will have to have a serious talk with our U.S. partners. So from... There's really two different, uh, two completely different uh, stories being told here, two explanations. Uh, Turkey says Russia violated their airspace. Russia says they did everything they can to tell uh, uh, the U.S. coalitions, which really isn't coalitions, really NATO front group, really, these NATO groups, NATO uh, um, nations uh, uh, acting at the behest of the U.S. He said he told them outright exactly what was going on, and they still shot him down. Now, I talked about the the moral, the moral argument, the humanitarian argument, and it's really, it's been a colossal lie. It's been a colossal lie. It's been, it was a lie in Iraq, and the results have been horrifically bad for the people of Iraq and U.S. foreign policy, as Iraq is less stable. It, it's been horrifically bad in Afghanistan. And the U.S. incidentally, the U.S. 
forces are still in Afghanistan since after 9-11. Yes, they're still there. It's been horrifically bad in Libya. And if really, if uh, if the Russians aren't successful in destroying ISIS, because certainly the U.S. really doesn't want to get rid of ISIS, then it's going to be horrifically bad if, uh, if President Assad is deposed. When, when you share some of this information with people, a lot of people will see, okay, well, you know, what you're saying is true. And then they ask a really good question. That's, you know, why? Why? Some people will attempt to interpret U.S. policy by just saying people people are stupid. You know, left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And I think that's erroneous. I think that's completely false because we see a very clear uh, a very clear direction in U.S. foreign policy. Many people have said, uh, Obama's first term was Bush's third term. And you can make, yeah, you, know, you could basically make a real, real strong argument with that. Even if you're going to say something domestically, something like Obamacare. Well, what greased the skid, so to speak? What prepared the way for Obamacare? It was Medicare, the expansion of Medicare, uh, including drugs and Medicare, which uh, that was a large expansion of government health care until Obamacare. That occurred under the Republican George W. Bush. Foreign policy, again, Obama continued this illegal war on terror. You can't declare war on a concept. If you define terrorism as a concept, you can't declare war on a tactic if you define terrorism as a tactic. So that is a very good question. People say, okay, well, you, you give me these facts. Okay, you have, you, 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 you've convinced me now. Okay, what the U.S. is doing isn't moral. It's not humanitarian. It's not helping the people. And... It also doesn't make the U.S. more safe. There, there was there was a clip I didn't pull it up tonight, but General Petraeus, when he was in charge of the forces in Iraq, he he went before the Senate, and there was actually a real question at the time asked asked by then sent by a senator from Virginia, and and that question was, is the U.S. more safe after being involved in the Iraq War? And Petraeus at first refused to answer that question, and then you know, the senator pressed him again. And Petraeus' answer was honest. He said, I uh, I really don't know. So you think about the cost in the terms of uh, dollars. You think about the cost in terms of U.S. lives, not just U.S. lives lost, but all the all the servicemen, all those who've been injured. Uh, and if it's about keeping the U.S. safe, uh and then when a general can't even say, in this case, Petraeus, he doesn't know, what's the point? But they're they're not just stupid, okay? They're not just that some people pass it off as that, and yeah, that they ignore the fact that you know, U.S. foreign policy is very consistent between the Democrats and Republicans, and that's why, for example, anyone running third party, they'll never let them sit in in, in the presidential debate, and the debate commission. I may have mentioned this before on the show. Uh, the Presidential Debate Commission is controlled by ex-members of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee, so they just want to give you that false choice. They want to give you, they create the illusion of choice. They give us false choices. They give us the illusion of choice. So they keep out any other voices. So then they debate minor points when it's basically the same. And you see that now. You see that now again with this, uh, with this, yeah, horrific attack upon Assad and the U.S. feigning pose ISIS. Yet the real objective is to topple Assad. General Wesley Clark <clears throat> was a NATO general, and he uh, he gave uh, he had said this, I believe, back in 2007. 
2007, he was kind of gone. Okay, and you can say, you know, do you know, do I trust Wesley Clark? Not, but obviously, I don't know him personally. But he's an interesting character. I, I think, uh, like most people at his level, yeah, he had tried to run for president. He was independent, and then he he uh, he declared as a Democrat. But uh, Wesley Clark talked about how there was a plan that was that was revealed to him. Uh, and again, he made the statement in 2007. He said this was revealed to him, I believe, after 9/11, about the U.S. wanting to destabilize the Middle East and basically topple a certain number of countries. And so this this is what Wesley Clark said. About 10 days after 9/11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the Joint Staff who used used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, "Sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, "Well, you're too busy." He said, "No, no." He says, "We've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq." This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, "We're going to war with Iraq. Why?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. The truth is about the Middle East is, had there been no oil there, it would be like Africa. Nobody is threatening to intervene in Africa. The problem is the opposite. We keep asking for people to intervene and stop it. And there's uh, there's no question that the presence of petroleum throughout the region has sparked great power involvement. Whether that was the specific motivation for the coup or not, I can't tell you. But but there was definitely, there's always been this attitude that somehow we could intervene and use force in the region. About 10 days after. Right, Wesley Clark, and that really confirms a document. You could do a start page search, startpage.com. You could use startpage.com. You could use duckduckgo.com. I don't use the other guy. Uh, don't use the big player. I won't say their name. And you can search a project for a new American century. Project for a new American century. They wrote a white paper called Rebuilding America's Defenses. And in that, among other things, they said uh, they did want to reshape the Middle East. But barring a new Pearl Harbor type event, the U.S. public wouldn't be, wouldn't be behind it. And then 9-11 occurred. So... Uh, we talked talk about the oil, how the U.S. the U.S. didn't bomb that oil. I had mentioned uh, I had mentioned NATO. Okay, NATO. When the situation with Turkey is even more 
serious because of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO was started in 1949, and that was a few years after the UN was started. UN was started in 1945 after World War II. The League of Nations had failed dramatically. It was done away with. You had World War I. Right after World War II, they tried again, gave it a new name, Rockefeller Money. You have that nice real estate in Midtown Manhattan that was donated, so to speak, by the Rockefeller family for the United Nations, and that's because they're deep. The Rockefeller families, they're just terribly committed to humanitarian causes. No, they are committed to globalism. They're committed to one world government. You go back to NATO, and what's happened is you have... I'm going to read Article 5 of uh, of North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, and uh, and then, yeah, from that, NATO, you have you have members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The the premise, allegedly, for NATO, you know, it was tied to the UN, but still, the premise is that as you had the Soviet Union post-World War II, you needed an alliance in Europe to counter them. So, yeah, that would sound that would sound reasonable. Okay, that would sound reasonable without going in another direction. Let me just read Article five of the North Atlantic Treaty. This goes back to April fourth, nineteen forty nine. Quote The parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an armed attack against them all, and consequently they agree that if that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense, recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith, individually and in concert with the other parties, such actions as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. Any such armed attack and all measures taken as a result thereof shall immediately be reported to the Security Council, meaning the UN Security Council. Such measures shall be terminated when the Security Council has taken the measures necessary to restore and maintain international peace and security. So you have NATO in 1949 basically carving out this agreement based upon, to a large degree, based upon the authority of the UN. So you see how these agreements subvert you know, the, the individual sovereignty of nations, the United States and others, subverse individual sovereignty. That's what globalism is all about. And that's really the religion these people worship. They, they worship eugenics. They want to reduce population. And the political mechanism to do that, to a large degree, is globalism, to tear down international, to tear down any, any boundaries between countries. That's why we have the EU, the European Union. That's the model. And that's why we have the burgeoning North American Union, modeled after the EU. To quote Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, which was, re- which was referred to in that, U- in that NATO article, quote, nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. Measures taken by members in the exercise of this right of self-defense shall be immediately reported to the Security Council and shall not in any way affect the authority and responsibility of the Security Council under the present charter to take at any time such action as it deems necessary in order to maintain or restore international peace and security. And if you haven't noticed, 
the world is not a safer place at all due to NATO whenever NATO is in, due to the UN. Whenever the UN has intervened, it's never really, it's never made any situation that I can recall better. So, this situation with Turkey, okay, Russia didn't attack Turkey. Turkey, a NATO member, attacked Russia. So, you could say if if you're at the top of the pyramid here, the power structure, and you want to provoke World War III, uh, what's what's one way to do it? Well, just start to be provocative against Russia. Have, have a NATO nation shoot down Russia. After Russians respond, then they invoke that. They invoke that article and just say, well, an attack on one nation, on one uh, one NATO nation, attack on all. And the, the thing, the thing that is really there's a lot of things that are disturbing about number one it subverts the sovereignty of the United, of the United States it subverts the sovereignty of the United States the United States should only go to war based upon what is good for the United States and that doesn't mean there aren't agreements with other countries but when those agreements subvert our sovereignty and put US security at risk uh, it really they become self-defeating they, they become self-defeating but again, realize the goal has always been this idea. It's always been the one world government. What's the route to one world government, to a global government? The route the route or the path to global government is regional government. Again, look at the EU. I've read that uh, over 70% of the laws that affect people in Great Britain aren't made in Great Britain. They're made in the European Union. Bureaucracy. Okay, they take take the power from the sovereign nation, subvert it, except these regional government structures. You see it in the U.S. in a lot of ways, particularly with the EPA, the so-called Environmental Protection Agency, will enforce regulations that are really mandates that are given at the international level. That's why, for example, it's not just Obama, but he's in power now. That's why he's going out, he's shutting down clean coal-burning power plants. They're going to create artificial scarcity. They shut down coal power plants based upon these international mandates. It has nothing to do with the environment. It never has. So, and, and it is funny too, incidentally. I won't go in that direction now. But how many you have all these Republicans, you know, want, you know, running for president, and no one that I've heard of yet has yet to say if he's elected, they'll abolish the EPA. EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was written into existence by an executive order of President Richard Nixon. It could go away by an executive order, but they, uh, they obviously, just like the United Nations, they don't want it to go away. Both parties pursue that policy. They, they're pursuing. They uh, they're committed to basically bringing down the economy slowly through the through uh, so-called environmental measures, which has nothing to do with the environment or carbon-based life form. It's the same thing with the United Nations. In spite of the fact that the United Nations exists to subvert U.S. sovereignty, doesn't matter who's in office, Democrats or Republicans, in Congress or the White House, no one no one withdraws from the U.N which would be the rational thing to do if you believe in the sovereignty of the U.S. Speaking of which, there was a very interesting uh, very interesting exchange on Capitol Hill. Defense Secretary Panetta, which Jeff, Jeff Sessions, this, this was in 2012, okay? And Secretary Panetta, okay, under Obama, said that the U.S. military was not under control of the U.S. Senate but it was under control of either NATO or the UN. And this is a this is one of the few times again you hear sometimes out of Washington you, you actually hear something 
that uh, that is important. It isn't just uh, it's not just a meaningless banner. General Dempsey, you you uh, in one of your criteria for determining um, what we might do militarily, you have to ask the question whether the action is worth the cost and is consistent with law. What law does the United States military look to? Yeah, if I could, since uh, I'd like to address both because they are related. So cost, resources, uh, use of force one other place. So, you know, it's a zero-sum game. We take them from someplace else, we use them for how long, and, and uh, that's that's the kind of issue of cost, is it? And, of course, in blood and treasure. Um, the issue of legal basis is is important, though. Um, you know, we, again, we act with the authorized use of military force either at the consent of a government, so we're invited in, or uh, out of national self-defense, which, and it's a very, um, there's a very clear criteria for that. And then the last one is with some kind of international legal basis, an UNSCR. Wait a minute. Uh, let's talk about an international legal basis. Um, you answer under the Constitution to the United States government, do you not? And you don't need any international support before you would uh, uh, carry out a military operation authorized by the commander. No, of course not. That's, the, sec that's the second well, I one I mean. I want to know that because there's a lot of references in here to uh, international matters before we make a decision. And I want to be sure that the United States military understands, and I know you do, that uh, it, it, we're not dependent on a NATO resolution or a UN resolution to execute policies consistent with the national security of the United States. So, now, Secretary Pinella, you, in your talk, in your remarks, uh, you, you talk about uh, uh, first we're working first. We're working to increase diplomatic isolation and encouraging other countries to join uh, the European Union and Arab League in, in uh, imposing sanctions. And then you note that China and Russia have repeatedly blocked the UN Security Council from taking action. Uh, are, are you saying, and is the president taking the position, he would not act um, if it was in our interest to do so? if the U.N. Security Council did not agree? Uh, Senator, when it comes to our national defense, uh, you know, uh, we act based on uh, what, uh, on protecting the security of this country, and uh, we don't look for permission from anybody else when it comes to our national defense. Okay. When it comes to uh, uh, the kind of military action where we want to build uh, a coalition and work with our international partners, then obviously we would like to have some kind of legal basis on which to do it as we did in Libya. Now, some sort of legal basis. We worried about international legal basis, but nobody worried about the fundamental constitutional uh, legal basis that this Congress has over war. We were not asked a stunning and direct violation of the War Powers Act whether or not you believe it's constitution, it certainly didn't comply with it. We spent our time worrying about the UN, the Arab League, NATO, and too little time, in my opinion, worrying about the elected representatives of the United States. Uh, as you go forward, will you consult uh, with the United States Congress, and can we be assured that you will have more consultation and more uh, 
participation and we, legal authority from the duly elected representatives. Of believe, believe me, we, we will. We don't, you know, we don't, uh, we don't have a corner on the market with regards to, uh, you know, uh, issues involving our defense. We, uh, we want to consult with the Congress. We want to get your best advice and your guidance. Uh, and when we take uh, action, we want to do it together. And do you think that you can act without Congress uh, to initiate a no-fly zone in Syria? Without congressional approval, you know. Again, uh, our our goal would be to uh, seek international permission, and uh, we would we would come to the Congress uh, and inform you uh, and determine uh, how best to approach this. Uh, whether or not we would uh, want to get uh, permission from the Congress, uh, I think those are issues we would have to discuss as we decide what to do here. Well, I'm almost breathless about that. Because what I heard you say is we're going to seek international approval and they will come and tell the Congress what we might do and we might seek congressional approval. No. Well, I want to just say to you, that's a big dish. Wouldn't you agree uh, you've served in the Congress? Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that that uh, would be pretty breathtaking to the average American? So would you like to clarify that? But I've, uh, I, I, you know, we, I've also uh, served... Uh, with Republican presidents and Democratic presidents who has all, always reserved the right to defend this country if necessary. But you, before we do this, you would seek permission of the international authorities. If we're, work, if we're working with an international coalition and we're working with NATO, uh, we would uh, want to be able to uh, get uh, appropriate permissions in order to be able to, to do that. That's That's something that you know, all of these countries would want to have some kind of legal basis on which to act. Well, what legal basis are you looking for? What what entity? Well, uh, obviously, the U if if NATO made the decision to go in, that would be one. Uh, if uh, if we if we developed an international coalition beyond NATO, uh, then obviously some kind of UN security resolution would. So, an, on a coalition of. So you're saying NATO would give you a legal basis and uh, um, an ad hoc coalition of nations would provide a legal basis? If we, if we, if we were able to put together a coalition uh, and uh, were able to uh, move together, then obviously we would seek whatever legal basis we would need in order to make that uh, uh, justified. I mean, you, you, you know, we, we can't just pull them all together. Uh, in a uh, combat operation without getting the, uh, the legal basis on which to act. Well, who are you asking for the legal basis from? If it's a, obviously if the UN passed a security resolution as it did in Libya, we would do that. Uh, if, uh, if NATO came together as we did in Bosnia, uh, we would rely on that. So, you know, we, we have options here uh, if we want to build uh, the kind of international approach to dealing with the situation. Well, I'm for all for having an international support, but I, I, I'm really baffled by the idea that, that somehow an international assembly provides a legal basis for the United States military to be deployed in combat. I don't believe it's close to being correct. They, have, they provide no legal authority. The only legal authority that's required to deploy the United States military is uh, the Congress and the President and the law and the Constitution. But let me just for the record be clear again, Senator, so there's no misunderstanding. When it comes to the national defense of this country, the President of the United States 
has the authority under the Constitution to act to defend this country, and we will. Uh, if, it, if it comes to a, an operation where we're trying to build a coalition of nations to work together to go in and operate as we did in Libya or Bosnia, for that matter, Afghanistan, we want to do it with permissions either by NATO or by the international community. Well, I'm troubled by that. I, I think that um, it, it, it does weaken the ability of the United States to lead. Uh, if we believe something ought to be done, I'd be thinking we would be going more aggressively to NATO and other allies, seeking every ally that we can get. But I do think, ultimately, you need the legal authority from the United States of America, not from any other extraterritorial group that might assemble. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay, if you caught that, there's there's a lot of mind-blowing things that came out of that exchange in 2012 between Republican Senator Jeff Sessions and then Secretary of Defense Panetta. And one of the things uh, that was mind-blowing was Panetta had said more than once, there's these two levels of legal authority to employ or use U.S. military power. One is if the U.S. the U.S. is threatened, okay, then then he would appear to believe in constitutional constitutional powers allegedly. Again, they didn't even talk about it. even Senator Sessions didn't even talk about Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eleven. Only Congress can declare a war. And then we have we have the limited exceptions for specific specific missions. You could use the letters of more keen reprisal. But apart from that. Panetta then goes in and says, you've got two levels. you got that one level, and you got this other, this other level. And then you start to talk really mystically. And I'm glad you know, Sessions exposed his, to use a philosophical term, his sophistry, which basically means he was making stuff up. And then uh, Panetta said, no, well, if we have an international coalition, then uh, um, really Congress isn't needed. And then Sessions pressed him more than once, saying, What's this legal basis if you're talking about this type of coalition? So basically, just, Panetta was saying, well, if the U.S. is involved in some type of international thing, and it's funny, Sessions back in 2012, you threw out the example. He says, what about, what about no-fly zone in Syria? No-fly zone in uh, Syria, which people, they wanted, which is an, an act of war. And Panetta wouldn't say, uh, he actually did say, it really has nothing to do with Congress if uh, the U.S. is involved in some type of coalition that uh, you know, they could you know, they could just do it, like the U.N. and then NATO. Okay, you go back to NATO. Uh, when NATO was cut, again, NATO following a few years after the heels on the heels of the U.N., allegedly NATO comes into existence to counter the Warsaw Pact when you had the Soviet Union controlling Eastern Europe and, and, those, uh, and those Soviet states. Uh, you had those you know, satellite states of the Soviet Union at the time. When you had that going on, NATO comes into existence, okay? But from the inception, again, they invoked the authority of the UN. So there's a bigger picture. It wasn't just about uh, the security of the members of NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So who uh, who was in NATO originally? Okay, what, uh, what what How many member nations were there? Okay. Right now, NATO has 28 members. 28. In 1949, there were 12 founding members. That was Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, 
Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and the United States. In 52, uh, Germany, I mean Greece and Turkey were added. Germany was added in 55, Spain in 82. Then look what happens after the Soviet Union falls. In 1999, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland were added. Then in 2004, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia were added. And then in 2009, Albania and Croatia. So you look on a map, and it's very clear what's happened. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States, under the guise of NATO, has basically been the aggressor, and they've been surrounding the former Soviet Union. They've basically been surrounding Russia, Russia by including all these uh, Eastern European nations into NATO. Because remember, remember that article, remember Article 5, okay? Uh, the parties agree, it's from NATO, NATO is a founding, founding principles, Article 5, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all, and consequently they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them exercises the right of individual collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the UN will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forth with individually in concert with other parties such actions as deemed necessary, including the use of armed force. So the way it was written initially, it was just talking about Europe or North America. So it'd be interesting, though, Turkey is a NATO ally, a NATO uh, member state. What would happen if Russia did attack Turkey, because you look at that charter, now I see it, it's just talking about Europe and North America. Turkey is not in, uh, definitely not North America, to the best of my knowledge, it's not in Europe. But you go back to what that exchange between Sessions and Panetta, okay, that was one of the, that was one of the uh, mind-blowing things that Panetta said, there's two levels of legal authority for the U.S. military to operate defense of the U.S. and then this international stuff. And then when he was, when he was pressed, uh, Panetta was openly said, it really didn't need the authority of Congress to act internationally. So even to do something like a no-fly zone in Syria, which would be considered an act of war, he basically said, no, if the U.N. or uh, NATO says, uh, they, uh, if the U.N. or NATO basically wants the U.S. to do it, they'll do it. Okay, And that tells you how far gone we are from what was once a constitutional republic. Okay, got one more clip tonight, and that's Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio is, in my opinion, the new establishment pick for Republican candidate for president because they know Jeb Bush, it seems, isn't going to come back. So Rubio is the same form, fit, and function as Jeb Bush, uh, different face, and they, you know, he's younger, uh, Latino. You know, Bush, Jeb Bush is married to a Latino, but uh, Rubio himself is Latino. So. Here you have Rubio talking about this, and he basically says the U.S. should be willing to go to war with Russia over Turkey. This is a, again, this is a man who's, I think, the current establishment pick running for president. Senator Mark Rubio is our guest today. Senator, nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Thanks so, so much. Just a reminder for our viewers, we like to get through four questions. Hopefully we get through a lot more, but this is purely their questions that we like to ask you. Put them in a little context, mm -hmm. bring in some breaking news, and we have ourselves usually a really fun time. So I'm going to start off with the news of the, uh, okay. the day. Turkey has shot down yep. a Russian jet. 
We know Turkey is a member of NATO, and there's a lot of statements coming out really within the last 10 minutes from all sides about what should be done. Rudy, one of our viewers, says this. Is Turkey still an ally to Senator Marco Rubio? How would President Rubio handle what happened overnight? Well, first, Turkey is a member of the NATO alliance, and so if the NATO alliance is to remain vibrant, then we have to live up to our commitments in that alliance. We can't decide that we're not going to work on behalf of one of these countries. Do we have concern about things happening in Turkey? I absolutely do. Erdogan has taken that country in a more, uh, uh, I would say, a little bit more radical direction. They've broken from a longstanding good relationship with Israel. Uh, you've seen him kowtow to some of the more uh, Islamist elements of, of their political parties in the country. So there is deep concerns about what's happening internally within Turkey. And quite frankly, a little bit of lack of cooperation on their part in the fight against ISIS up until very recently. That said, they are still a member of the NATO alliance. And if we were not to come to uh, Turkey's defense and assistance in any instance, it would undermine uh, the NATO alliance. And so that, that's something we need to understand. What would that NATO look like? Is important today as it's been in 20 years. For example, well, if Russia, well, because all, Russia they, they saying today, you know, this is an unfriendly act, this is a stab in the back. If Russia actually takes measures, and we don't know what those are, against Turkey, what does the United States do? Well, first, it's the reason why I warned about having uh, Russia in the Middle East is so complicated. I, I warned exactly specifically this could happen, that there could be an incident with Turkey, a NATO ally, that they could have, uh, that they could aggressively fly over their territory and be shot down. They do this to the Baltic states, and obviously they did it in this case when it comes to Turkey. So what would a confrontation look like? Well, first of all, you've already seen it, and that is what will the Russian response be? And this is a critical moment, because if Russia believes that they can respond and retaliate against Turkey, because NATO is not going to do anything about it, what they are basically doing is they are making the argument that NATO is no longer viable, that it is a feckless uh, uh, alliance. And so it's important for us to be very clear that we will respond and defend Turkey if they come under assault from the Russians. Otherwise, the entire NATO alliance comes into question. You know, it's interesting. Dan has a question just came up on our chat about that. He says, if that's the case and we're forced to defend Turkey, then you have Russia and Syria and Iran on one side. Is that a formula for war? Well, we would hope it wouldn't reach that point. My sense is that if, in fact, we were true to our word on and, and, and showed that we were going to be supportive of Turkey in this engagement, my sense is that the Russians would not test it. They, they do not have the capabilities to confront the NATO alliance, particularly the United States or even the Turks for this matter. And, um, and so I don't think Russia, you know, at the end of the day, although Vladimir Putin is a gangster and a criminal, he is also a geopolitical actor who makes decisions on a cost-benefit analysis. And he'll have to do something to save face. But, uh, but ultimately, he is not going to test the alliance if he believes the alliance is going to stand up to him because he'll lose in that confrontation, and that would be an even bigger setback for him. All right, so we'll wait and take a pause at this moment, see which all sides do, and then, of course, what place the United States is. Uh okay, so Rubio, Rubio there, like uh, former Defense Secretary uh, Panetta, cares a lot. They care a lot about this NATO alliance. Uh, they care a lot about the NATO articles. Notice how... He said absolutely nothing about the U.S. Constitution. Absolutely nothing. Uh, you'd like to think someone who's running for president would be more committed to understanding the simple and original intent of the U.S. Constitution, particularly Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11. Only Congress can declare war. But no, but no, he's he's concerned about NATO. And one of the other things he said that was that was outrageously false. There, he said. Russia couldn't even deal with Turkey. Uh, that is, uh, he is, <laughs> I believe he's terribly wrong there militarily. But here you have Turkey commits an act of aggression against Russia. And then 
they threaten to call in NATO if Russia responds, even though Turkey is not in North America or technically Europe. So what, uh, what do we learn from all this? Number one, uh, the U.S. has categorically lied. US, the, the policy in the, of the United States and the Middle East has been based upon a series of colossal lies. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The U.S. invasion of Iraq has been horrifically bad for the people of Iraq, and it has made the U.S. more secure. Uh, the U.S. bombing and deposing of Muammar Gaddafi uh, has not made life better for the people of Libya, and the U.S. has not been more secure. And I did not touch upon tonight Benghazi. A good part of what happened in Benghazi is that Benghazi was being used to ship weapons. The U.S. was shipping weapons from Benghazi to ISIS via Turkey. Didn't even get into that tonight. Uh, the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East has been immoral. It's been immoral. It has not helped the people of the Middle East. Any claim, any uh, any type of assertion that the U.S. policy is humane or, or is for humanitarian purposes in the Middle East is is beyond erroneous. It's an outrageous lie. And that's seen very clearly now in Syria. When the U.S. without reason says Assad has to go, the U.S. lies the U.S. government lies and says they're against ISIS when they're not, and Russia is actually destroying ISIS, and that's what creates between Russia and Turkey. One of the greatest examples of why how the U.S. is not committed to getting rid of ISIS is shown in the fact that it took them 15 months to start to destroy the uh, the oil trucks and the tankers that ISIS is using to fund their operation to a large degree. Russia didn't wait. Russia went right in because Russia is seriously fighting ISIS, and the U.S. is involved, is involved in a show war against ISIS. Yet still, we have Senator McCain, as well as Democrats, saying they want to support this mythical, moderate opposition against Assad. Right, right. <laughs> if Assad's deposed, who's going to gain power? ISIS. ISIS. No. Finally, we see the constitutional basis uh NATO was NATO was flawed from day one, in my opinion. Should have never been. It was just it was just about countering potential aggression against the former Soviet Union. Should have had no ties to the United Nations. So the NATO the NATO articles were critically flawed. NATO uh, should have ceased to exist if the U.S. policy was moral and rational after the former Soviet Union fell, but it didn't. Instead, the U.S. has become more aggressive using NATO as a tool to surround the former Soviet Union. And didn't have time tonight to talk about Ukraine, but right now tensions are far higher with Russia than it ever was during the Cold War. Why? During the Cold War, the line of demarcation was between uh, East and West Germany. Right now, it's right at the doorstep of Ukraine. It's right at the doorstep. The U.S. basically <coughs> caused that to a large degree financed and undermined the legitimate government of Ukraine to put in a more pro-Western government. And uh, that is, uh, that's very serious. So I hope you did enjoy the show tonight. Do not let people in Washington, Republican, Democrats, or others lie to you. Learn a little bit about the Constitution, the highest law of the land. Learn a little bit about history. And uh, I hope you, uh, you defend this country and uh, do what's right according to the highest law of the land and not according to any uh, mythical, don't believe U.S. policy should be dictated by any mythical or imaginary international authority, which uh, 
which should never subvert or undermine the U.S. Constitution. Next week, uh, Poggi will be back, and I thank him again for uh, for the opportunity to host the show. K-I-R-P Radio! Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.